Today's Your Stories is brought to you by Field Notes. Field Notes brand, USA-made memo books and other products, including seasonal limited editions. Visit fieldnotesbrand.com or 400 North May in Chicago for more info. Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your stories to me has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there. No questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not, not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience uh, one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story and their story is your story and then it's our story and then it's a podcast so it's everybody's story and then you've shared it and gosh that's great huh and even if you don't think you're a nerd you probably are that's something hi everybody my name is eric garnell and this is the first part of the third annual The Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories Fan Fiction episode. This week, you'll tremble to Brad Einstein's sensual exploration of Fred Phelps in Gay Heaven. You'll gorge yourself on Logan Dean's suspense-filled tale of fat Orson Welles in the case of the Gilded Goblet. You'll quake at the earth-shaking power of Drew Creel's Dragon Ball Nazi. You'll ponder the heartfelt message of Maggie Wagner's Holodorks. And you'll reflect somberly on your choices when you hear Katie Johnston-Smith sing her song Closed Doors. Plus, you'll delight to other musical selections from myself, Dwight Hassler, Claire Friedman, and special guest, Mike Chuck Bretzliff. Uh, these fan fiction episodes are just so much fun to do, and we hope you enjoy listening to them as much as we enjoy creating them. Uh, so I have a couple shout-outs before we get to the episode proper. First, you may have noticed the brief advertisement uh, for Field Notes at the top of this episode. That's because this is the first Your Stories episode under the umbrella of the Chicago Podcast Co-op, a great new sponsorship program set up by our own Claire Friedman. To learn more about this program, which you really should if you are a creative person in Chicago, go to chicagopodcastcoop.com. Uh, and also get stuff from Field Notes and tell them that you did that because of this podcast, because that would be super helpful. Uh, I also want to extend thanks to Threadless, the really cool t-shirt company that let us record this episode at their HQ. Uh, everyone, go buy stuff from Threadless and Field Notes. It's just two things you have to patronize today. Forget about groceries, forget about, I don't know, what the fuck else you buy. Just Threadless, Field Notes, your stories. Go! Uh, otherwise, just keep enjoying the stuff we nerds are working hard on, like our weekly podcast, and lots of other good stuff coming down the pipeline that we will tell you about soon. Uh, to quote the Golden Girls theme, guys, thank you for being a friend, and please enjoy this episode. <laughs> so for the third year in a row, we are doing Fan Fiction February, 
And so we always play songs that fit the theme at the top of a show. And uh, so let's count down. We always do something different for fan fiction. The first year we did Led Zeppelin songs about Lord of the Rings because there's five of them. Uh, <laughs> last year we did songs that were more famous as covers because covers are kind of a fan fiction. You, uh, guys, what are we doing tonight? We are doing songs about fans. <laughs> we're doing songs about being fans of things. Very elegant introduction. To so, uh, here's a bunch of songs about being fans of stuff. And we have Mike Chuck on bass here. This is the first. Uh, uh, yeah, so I don't think this song really needs any introduction. Dwight, you ready? Your vocal cords work out? Here we go. Alright. <laughs> Tea's gone cold, I'm wondering why Got out of bed at all Morning thing clouds up my window And I can't see it all And even if I put it at all be great With your picture on my wall It reminds me that it's not so bad It's not so bad Slim, I wrote you, but you still ain't calling. I left my cell, my pager, and my home phone at the bottom. I sent two letters back in autumn. You must not have got them. There probably was a problem at the post office or something. Sometimes I scribble addresses too sloppy when I jot them. But anyways, fuck it. What's been up, man? How's your daughter? My girlfriend's pregnant, too. I'm about to be a father. If I have a daughter, guess what I'm a caller? I'm a name of Bonnie. I read about your Uncle Ronnie, too. I'm sorry. I had a friend kill himself over some bitch who didn't want him. I know you probably hear these every day, but I'm your biggest fan. I even got the underground shit that you did with Scam. I got a room full of your posters and your pictures, man. I like the shit you did with Rockets, too. That shit was fat. Anyways, I hope you get this, man. Hit me back just to chat. Truly yours, your biggest fan. This is Stan. Slim. You still ain't called a rope. I hope you have a chance. I ain't mad. I just think it's fucked up you don't answer fans. If you didn't want to talk to me outside the concert, you didn't have to, but you could have signed an autograph from Matthew. That's my little brother, man. He's only six years old. We waited in the blistering cold for you for four hours. You just said no. That's pretty shitty, man. You like this fucking idol. He wants to be just like you, man. He likes you more than I do. We met at Denver. You said if I write you, you would write back. See, I'm just like you in a way. I never knew my father neither. He used to always cheat on my mom and beat her. I can relate to what you're saying in your songs. So when I have a shitty day, I drift away and put them on. Because I don't really got shit else, and that shit helps when I'm depressed. I even got a tattoo with the name across the chest. Sometimes I even cut myself to see how much it bleeds. It's like adrenaline. The pain is such a sudden rush for me. See, everything you say is real, and I respect you because you tell it. My girlfriend's jealous because I talk about you 24-7. But she don't know you like I know you, Slim. No one does. She don't know what it was like for people like us growing up. You gotta call me, man. I'll be the biggest fan you'll ever lose. Sincerely yours. Stan, BS. We should be together, too. Mister, I'm too good to call and write my fans. This will be the last pack 
package I ever send your ass. But six months and still no word. I don't deserve it. I know you got my last two letters. I wrote the addresses on them perfect. So this is my cassette I'm sending you. I hope you hear it. I'm in a car right now. I'm doing 90 on the freeway. Hey Slim, I drink the fifth of vodka. Dare me to drive? You know that song by Phil Collins in the era of the night about that guy who could have saved that other guy from drowning but didn't? Then Phil saw it all and had a show he found him? That's kind of how this is. You could have rescued me from drowning. Now it's too late. I'm on a thousand downers now. I'm drowsy. And all I wanted was a lousy letter or a call. I hope you know I ripped all of your pictures off the wall. I love you, Slim. We could have been together. Think about it. You ruined it now. I hope you can't sleep and you dream about it. And when you dream, I hope you can't sleep and you scream about it. I hope your conscience eats at you and you can't breathe without me. See, Slim? Shut up, bitch. I'm trying to talk. Hey, Slim, that's my girlfriend screaming in the trunk, but I didn't slit her throat. I just tied her up. See, I didn't like you. Because if she suffocates, she'll suffer more. Then she'll die, too. Well, gotta go. I'm almost at the bridge now. Oh, shit. I forgot. How am I supposed to send this shit out? Stand. I meant to write you sooner, but I've just been busy. You said your girlfriend's pregnant now. How long, how long is she? Look, I'm really flattered you would call your daughter that. And here's an autograph for your brother. I wrote it on the starter cap. I'm sorry I didn't see you at the show. I must have missed you. Don't think I did that shit intentionally just to diss you. And what's this shit about you like to cut your wrist too? I say that shit just clowning, dog. Come on, how fucked up is you? You've got some issues, Stan. I think you need some counseling to help your ass from bouncing off the walls when you be down so... What's this shit about us meant to be together? That type of shit'll make me not us want us to beat each other. I really think you and your girlfriend need each other. Or maybe you just need to treat her better. I hope you get to read this letter. I just hope it reaches you in time before you hurt yourself. I think that you'll be doing just fine if you relax a little. I'm glad I inspire you, but Stan, why are you so mad? Try to understand that I do want you as a fan. I just don't want you to do some crazy shit. I seen this one shit on the news a couple weeks ago that made me sick. Some dude was drunk and drove his car over a bridge and had a girlfriend in his truck and he, she was pregnant with his kid and in the car they found the tape but they didn't say who it was too come to think about it his name was it was you damn how about that shit that is that is an intense song that is an intense song so Claire and I way to go Mike Chuck, Mike Chuck yeah Claire and I are gonna do a tune. Uh, before we do this, can you can I sit here? Can we trade? Bye, Dwight. See you later. Yeah, you're not on this one. Uh, before we do this, <laughs> before we do this song, I want to say that um, in the past calendar month, in the past 30, 31 days, we've done four Your Stories recordings, which is something like twenty songs that we've had to learn fresh. So give it up for Claire and Dwight for being fucking troopers this past month. Hey there. We're going to take a little break after uh, after this one, which means we'll just do our regular show next month instead of, like, two bonus episodes. So, you know. Uh, here's a cool song from the 90s. Okay. You good? As stated by Eric, this song was 
before my time. True. So like yesterday. <laughs> P.S. Claire is one year old. <laughs> Three. You guys will know this one, I think. show
X-Files. Um, you guys remember that one? Yeah. That was a song, yeah. If you get a chance, please, please go home and watch the video for it that's on YouTube, which is not the official video, but I believe the video created by an assistant for Fox who got, like, a bunch of people to lip-sync it and then got a bunch of very famous celebrities, like Brad Pitt in Fight Club type of celebrities and the entirety of Kiss to lip-sync it, and then David Duchovny. And then at the end, they slam a door on uh, Gillian Anderson. Also funny, in my in the lyrics I got from this song for the internet, like, after the line, I'm going to kill Scully, the person who wrote the lyrics typed a frowny face and, like, text like a semi... or, like, a colon in a <laughs> I guess they really like Scully. Yeah, I guess it's like an emotional cue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did he do the? Did he do make the face? <laughs> anyway, guys, thanks for uh, putting up with our bits. We're just gonna do about two more hours of bits, and then you. Have to go home. <laughs> uh, no, we've got we've got stories tonight, and uh, coming up first to the stage is the gentleman who has not been on the Your Story stage before. But you know what? None of us have been on this literal stage before, so that's okay. We're all on even ground here. This is Brad Einstein. <laughs> Into this, into this, or into that? Uh, either. Probably that one's best. Okay, cool. Hey, guys. Um, I mean, okay, this is an echoey chamber. We don't really... Cool. Hey, guys, thank you so much uh, for having me, and uh, Claire for the sexual nepotism that let me uh, have a part in this. Um, so yeah, I guess this is this is usually like real stories, but this month it's okay to say fake stories. Um, and I wrote uh, this fake story a couple months ago um, when Fred Phelps died of the Westboro Baptist Church. I know he's a hero to all of us. Um, and man, no, nothing, nothing satisfies like months-old satire. So I apologize. <laughs> In advance, but I don't write a lot of fan fiction, so this is um, the best we're gonna gonna have. Okay, so like to set the stage, um, he just died yesterday. Cool. The warm sun beat down on Fred Phelps's brow. It was a hot day, but it always was here. Fred couldn't tell; he couldn't care less. All he cared about was the celestial throbbing that started in his loins and radiated out of his heart. The landscape here shimmered and glowed. Fred couldn't tell if this was from the glorious noonday sun or that this was just how things were here in gay heaven. In life, Fred Phelps had been called many things. A monster. A devil. Hitler minus all the talent. (laughs) The third Manning brother of hate mongers. For those unfamiliar with sports, the Twilight Express of hate mongers. A living scarecrow stuffed with rancid Greek yogurt that had two used condoms for eyes. But Fred Phelps was so much more than just that. He was a person, 
a truly awful person to most humans with brains, but even the worst people have multiple facets. For Fred, it was the fact that in the 1960s, he was a crusader for civil rights and for a time was a true friend to the African-American population in Kansas, a fact that would make a lot of people really uncomfortable, probably because it just seems so outrageously out of character, because how does the founder of the Westboro Baptist Church not hate black people. It's just like, I don't know, Jesus' core message of doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. It just doesn't make any sense. But hey, our vengeful, loveless God works in mysterious ways. Fred had brought the world what he had thought was the greatest discovery of the 21st century, not the polio vaccination. That was a papist ruse. (laughs) And not the theory of relativity. That's just what happens when a Jew thinks too hard. (laughs) No, he discovered that, say it with me now, God hates Fags. Yes, thank you, Dwight was the only person who said it. Wow. You see, Fred made the startling discovery that every tragedy, terror, and negative event in human history can directly be tied to a man putting his peeing mechanism into another man's pooping mechanism. Absolving Fred and all other heterosexuals of any responsibility they ever might have for the poor state of the world. And he spent the rest of his life spreading that message to the people who needed it most. The grieving families of soldiers, theaters staging productions of the Laramie Project. And just yesterday, three months ago, or way more than three, math, fuck math. And just yesterday, at a Lord concert. And, of course, most of all, his own totally not-gay psyche. Throughout his whole life, Fred knew that after he died, he would finally enter that blessed, faggot-free zone in the sky, where he would be forever liberated from earthly gayness, spending his days skipping from cloud to cloud, wearing shimmering robes and singing in choirs with angels named Gabriel. In short... A straight man's paradise. (laughs) Fred Phelps, like all men, good and bad, just and wicked, poor and Republican, did die. And to the surprise to many of you here, he went to heaven. It just wasn't the heaven he expected. For those who missed the beginning of the piece, it was gay heaven. (laughs) Hey, big boy. It was Oscar Wilde. (laughs) Oscar, I didn't see you there, Fred said, his heart skipping a beat. And maybe you can feel me here, Oscar replied, as he slid behind him and pulled Fred's body towards his by the hips. Tell me, duckling, what are you doing tonight, Oscar asked. I was thinking of going over to the Rock Hudson Cineplex to catch the double feature of Mommy Dearest and Frozen before the Pointer Sisters concert tonight, Fred replied. I never understood the point of sisters when brothers had such nice pointers, Oscar replied. Slowly inching his fingers towards Fred Phelps' thighs. 
Oh, Oscar, you have such a devilish tongue. If you think it's devilish now, wait until it finds your beehole. <laughs> a little-known fact about Oscar Wilde was that no matter how eloquent he was in everyday life, his dirty talk only consisted of references to beeholes. <laughs> It thrilled Fred that he knew this. Come with me, Oscar said. He grabbed Fred's hand and led him May West, crossing the Joan Rivers through the Joan Crawford, and led him to the Natalie Woods. <laughs> Less gay guys in this audience. It kills with the gay guys. <laughs> they turned to face each other amidst the elms, and for a single instant... Fred stopped. He saw the trunks warp, turning into a mass of screaming people. They were shouting prayers, and the prayers turned to ash as soon as they left their lips. They were holding signs of great wickedness, and Fred could feel the hate radiate out of their tie-dyed Tweety Bird t-shirts. He was terrified. But as soon as they appeared, the shadows were gone, and all that was left was peace and love. An Oscar, Fred's beautiful Oscar, his scarlet smoking jacket dappled in the forest light, his eyes mischievously shining as the birds sang Britney Spears' work bitch overhead. <laughs> so, Fred Phelps, Oscar said, how about Oscar Wilde gets Oscar Wilde on that beehole? That was all it took. Fred Phelps and Oscar Wilde started fucking. Hard. The kind of fucking that you wish you did, but you know you don't. The, the kind of fucking that gets so gross, it becomes beautiful again. Like, wa like watching a dog drink water in slow motion. Fred's body was filled with a holy ecstasy he had never felt before. He did everything throughout their five-plus-hour non-stop fuck-fest. It was five-plus hours because there's no such thing as a refractory period in gay heaven. <laughs> Fred topped. Fred bottomed. But most importantly, Fred forgave. As Oscar Wilde ravaged his b-hole... Like Santa Anna ravaged the Alamo. <laughs> or Fred Phelps himself ravaged the funeral of a soldier. Fred Phelps forgave himself. He knew he did not deserve the forgiveness he had somehow found in this place, but he knew he would not squander it. This gay paradise had given him a kind of peace and serenity that he never could have achieved in the heterosexual citadel of hate he had built on earth. At that moment, Oscar Wilde came like a jackhammer in the back of his throat. As he did, all the Fred Phelps earthly ideologies melted away, along with the golden cum of Oscar Wilde. God hates, what was it again? Tags? Flags? Whatever it was... Fred Phelps knew in his heart that it was wrong. 
Because God, God didn't hate anything. Not even Fred Phelps. Thanks. Man, that was great. Fucking great first story. You guys, I just want to clear up a little misconception. Uh, you do not have to sleep with someone in the Nerdalogs to get a spot on your stories. But it does, but it does not hurt. Uh, P.S. I am the only single member of the Nerdalogs. Anyway, so... Uh, speaking of sexual nepotism, I'm so sorry this is the introduction. Logan Dean... <laughs> Thank you. I, I appreciate that. You you don't have to sleep with anybody in the neurologs, but Eric is single, if anyone is sleeping. Uh, I wrote this piece about a month ago for another thing, um, but it's ridiculous, so I'll read it here. It's called Fat Orson Welles and the Case of the Gilded Goblet. <clears throat> I remember it was late summer because I had slept through my tuxedo. I was being... Removed from my town car by two strapping young valets using a generous amount of virgin olive oil. <clears throat> As I readjusted my cummerbund, I noticed a shifty-looking man giving me quite the side eye. I, upon making eye contact, he turned and disappeared into an alleyway. Not one to miss a meal, I entered the restaurant I had traveled halfway around the world to dine at. Approaching the check room, I was greeted by a woman who seemed to have the benefit of a mirthful soul. Removing my cloak and hat, I was sure to give her specific instructions. My fedora is filled to the brim with purple nerd candies. I know exactly how many are contained within. If all the nerds are not accounted for when I return, I shall have words with your direct supervisor. This same edict goes for the satchel of bacon concealed within my cloak. (laughs) With the woman's upbeat attitude summarily quashed, I proceeded to my table. I was a frequent patron of this restaurant because it knew of my... and accommodated my penchant for eating two pre-meal rotisserie chickens. (laughs) Upon cracking the ribs of the second chicken, I noticed a note had been slipped into the chest cavity. I set it aside and proceeded to destroy the chicken. (laughs) I continued to ignore this curious note as my courses arrived. One large pot of clam bisque, a salad that I eyed with thinly veiled contempt. (laughs) An entire school of almond-encrusted salmon, another chicken, and two chocolate raspberry cakes. I paired this with three bottles of 1947 Coats de Rhone and half a glass of water. As some of the waiters helped me from my chair, I remembered the curious note from earlier. I took it and put it into my jacket pocket. I retrieved my cloak and fedora and was relieved when, upon putting it on my head, I was greeted by the familiar reign of nerds that announces my exit. After squeezing into my hired car, I remembered the note. I removed it from my jacket and began to read aloud. Dear Mr. Wells, You do not know me, but I believe I have an interesting proposition regarding a legendary item of intrigue, the gilded goblet of Lord Cronin. At this point, my interest was piqued. I continued. 
Lord Cronin's goblet is said to contain jewels from his travels, including a gem from another dimension that he obtained on the Isle of Cyprus. At this point, I fell asleep. (laughs) Upon waking, I was surprised to find myself standing upon a bluff overlooking the sea. The shifty man from outside the restaurant standing before me. Mr. Wells, he began, I trust you have read my note. I read a portion of it before going into my customary post-meal comatose state. The note itself was pasted to my shirt, thanks to the copious amounts of chicken grease on it. (laughs) Ah, yes, here it is, something about a goblet and a space rock. No, Mr. Wells, a gem, a very special gem. It is supposedly the remnant of a pocket universe destroyed upon the creation of our universe proper. I was vaguely aware of what he was saying as I remembered the bacon concealed in my cloak. (laughs) What use of I would I have for such a thing, I asked with a mouthful of smoked pig. I assure you, sir, it is very special. Legend has it that the gem controls the very fabric of reality. I see. And where is this goblet? Obviously, I'm in no state to go traipsing through the jungle on some fool's errand. That is the reason I have sought you out in particular, he said. I believe you already own it. While it is true that I do own many priceless goblets, I believe I would know if I owned an object of omnipotent power. That is the nature of the gem's deception. It does not reveal itself until a worthy suitor mutters this incantation. He handed me two pieces of paper. One had an incantation that I could not read, but immediately recognized as cuneiform. The other was a picture of what I immediately identified as my cookie milk goblet. A goblet I use exclusively for dunking cookies into milk. (laughs) When I raised my head to inform my new friend of this development, he had disappeared, leaving me on the bluff next to my car, my driver rousing from a fitful slumber. We quickly made our way to the airport where my charter jet was waiting to return us to Los Angeles. Luckily, the steward had seen fit to stock this flight with blood sausages and uncooked penne noodles for me to sleep snack on. (laughs) Our arrival in Los Angeles was uneventful as I was carted from the plane and placed into a limousine while unconscious. I woke as we were pulling up to my manor. I immediately fast-walked to the goblet room. In the case on the far wall was my cookie goblet. I removed it and headed to the kitchen. As I was unable to read the incantation, I rubbed it on the largest gem in the goblet. It began to glow with an intense fury, and I could see the expanse of all space and time before me. I threw the goblet down and ate approximately one dozen scotch eggs to regain my strength. (laughs) I then took the goblet and, using all of my willpower, threw it into my pit of burning Don Quixote footage, where it melted and was destroyed. The gem lingered before cracking from the heat of the burning night-rate film stock. The shrieks of the unquiet dead filled the air as the object out of time was returned to the ether from whence it came. I then got into my limousine and made my way to the airport for a nine o'clock dinner reservation in Paris, France. Logan Dean. All right, y'all are going to learn something. Does anybody know what Orson Welles' last film role was? Uh, yeah. Transformers. 
Transformers the movie, 1986. He played Unicron, a, a giant robot planet that eats other planets. Uh, on the on the DVD release of Transformers the movie, they interview the director, who is this Japanese animation dude. I, I hope this doesn't sound racist. I don't think he knew much about American cinema because when the interviewer asked him about Orson Welles, all he could recall is that uh, he, he said something very offhand, like, Orson was so fat they had to use a dolly to wheel him into the studio. <laughs> this, these, are, these are the last words spoken about a man who basically helped define American cinema. So, hey, you know, but Transformers the movie is also fucking cool. Uh, <laughs> counterpoint. I'm a little bit of a, of a Transformers scholar. P.S. Guy's the only single member of the Nerdlogs. Uh, coming up next to the stage, Mr. Drew Creel. Drew, who knew that his last role was Transformers the movie? I didn't know. Oh, jeez. Hey, buddy. Hey, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm doing, doing all right. <laughs> um, all right, so I wrote this mostly yesterday and on the ride here, so I apologize. <clears throat> the sun rose bright that dawn, marking the start of a new era. The squad leader looked out into the open sky with a rush of anticipation. He had long waited for this day. The mission target was out there, high in the sky, higher than any normal jet car could fly. The squad had used specialized planes so they could reach the platform's altitude. Even these specialized planes, even with these specialized planes, locating the target was nigh impossible, avoiding all conventional detectors. The squad had to rely on their leader's memory and key sensory to show them the way. There, up ahead, a colored speck in the distance growing larger. As the planes approached, the target began to take shape, a half-sphere floating in the sky devoid of any thrusters or wings. Uh, its bottom sphere was colored with wide bands of green and red, with a white ladder trailing down its side towards the bottom. Its top is flat, tiled white, with a small building nestled closer to one side of the circle, and several trees arranged in rows about the open platform. It looked like an oasis of land in the blue sky, and many of the soldiers were baffled by how it seemingly floated without effort or reason. Their planes hovered gingerly above the platform as the black-clad troops slid down ropes towards the surface. The captain simply jumped out in front of his out from his platform or er, out from his tra- transport plane onto the tile with a graceful flip, landing well ahead of his men. Though his height is revealed to be quite a bit shorter than most of the troops, the group assembles for only a moment when there is a shot of attention. One of the men points towards the building, where a plump black man in a turban walks out into the open. Oh, hello. We weren't expecting visitors. We've been spotted. Attack! The soldiers begin pulling out tiny pellets from their pockets, pressing a button, and tossing the capsules in front of them. The containers would burst in in a cloud of pink smoke. The gas fades away to reveal high-powered assault rifles, laser cannons, and tanks. A volley of laser blasts Gunshots uh, and gunshots begin streaking their way towards the black man, who starts to dance and dodge around the attack in panic. The troops, uh, to the troops' amazement, the black man is able to avoid their impending barrage, even manages to close in on a few soldiers, landing several powerful kicks and strikes that send the troops flying over the edge of the platform. 
The man is about to turn his attention to the commandos, to more of the commandos, when a flying kick from the squad leader connects with the black man's head, sending him over the edge of the platform. Mr. Popo! A shout is heard from the building. An alien-looking man in green skin, or with green skin, wearing simple robes and holding a walking stick, uh, calls out towards his plummeting friend. The soldiers turn their guns toward the alien fear. Cease fire! Do not harm the guardian. We need him alive. Who, who are all of you? How did you find my lookout? All will be revealed in time, Dende. Quickly, men. We have only a few moments until others are alerted. Search the premises for the remaining orb and rendezvous inside the hyperbolic time chamber. The troops filled the HTC and were stunned to see the paradox inside. Within this inner room of the floating villa lay seemingly another dimension of infinite space. Upon entering the door's threshold, the individual finds him or herself inside another room situated in a smaller but near-identical version of the building outside. However, instead of open sky, the tiles... The tiled floor simply extends forever in all directions. Above them, simply a white void. As the men began stepping out from the smaller building, they were suddenly brought to their knees from what felt oddly close to times ten Earth's gravity. <laughs> only the truly, only the truly strong men may, or only, tru- only the truly strong may step out beyond the chamber's threshold," said the squad leader as he strode out to the, into the clear pane, beyond any of his lesser men, holding with him a metal security case. Opening the case reveals seven orange crystal balls, stars of differing numerical value, suspended in each of the orbs from one to seven. The orbs begin to glow ominously as the squad leader takes his few steps back. Finally, the moment has arrived. Eternal dragon, by your name... I summon for Shadron. A great blast of lightning erupts from the orbs, and the and the white void above them turns black. The lightning rises higher. And, sorry, uh, rises higher and higher, stretching its form from mighty, uh, stretching its form into a mighty Chinese myth dragon. The dragon's body coils over itself many times over, and it's as its deer-horned head and glowing red eyes lower towards the summoner. Choose your words carefully. As you speak, I will make three of your wishes come true, bellowed the mighty dragon. Mighty Shenron, I wish forth, I wish for the resurrection of this world's one true ruler, the return to life and summon to this room the fear Adolf Hitler. Wish granted. Another surge of lightning sprang forth from the dragon balls. The light blessed, blinding all in the room. As their eyes adjust to the flash, a humanoid form stands menacingly before them. It is I, Hitler! Who dares summon me from the grave? The squad leader steps forth and removes his helmet. It is I, Krillin, your most loyal servant. Yes, Krillin, I've been watching you from the other world. Periodically, I've sort of lost tabs recently. Looks like you've made a lot of progress. Very good. Yes, my liege, I, Krillin, who has really been a skinhead neo-Nazi this whole time. Um, uh, sorry. Oh, Jesus, I lost my space. 
Uh, yes, Ikril and blah, blah, blah. Orchestrated this whole plot to resurrect you. Behold, your army awaits you. Equipped with hypermobile assault weapons and tanks, thanks to Capsule Corp technology, and a limitless supply of food thanks to our army, or thanks to a, uh, my, uh, bleh. With my genetically modified sensu beans, made to yield the highest crop output for the for our hungry soldiers, uh, Krillin offers a sensu bead to Hitler, who tries one and consumes it greedily. Mmm, delicious! Excellent work, Krillin! Now the world is mine for the taking! Not quite, my dark lord, for there is a mighty warrior that defends this planet. Behold! Krillin produces a holographic projector displaying one of the one and only Goku, uh, fighting it out with Frieza, going Super Saiyan, and generally being badass. Uh, Hitler watches this with his jaw agape, awestruck by the beautiful platinum blonde hair and striking blue eyes. Who is this angel among men? His Aryan meter is over 9,000. Uh, this is the world's strongest fighter, Goku. And he is no mere man. He is a Saiyan, a super Saiyan, capable of tremendous feats of, cap- of combat ability, uh, even, beyond, even beyond my own prowess. Um, he is truly our greatest threat. But thankfully, he is busy off-world dealing with a galactic crisis, leaving the Earth defenseless. Incredible! Never in my, li- never in my lives did I expect to see such a perfect specimen of Aryan form and function. I wish that I could be a Super Saiyan like Goku so that I might conquer these lands with my own two fists. Wish granted, <laughs> bellowed Shenron again, overhearing Hitler's uh, request. An explosion of power erupts from Hitler's body as his hair begins to glow. Uh, it begins to grow and spike up in a golden hue. His muscles hulk, ripping his Nazi regalia to shreds. Uh, his eyes blaze a blue uh, as clear as sky, and, his, and even his mustache transforms into a patch of golden, uh, of spiked golden glory. Um, <laughs> Powerful waves of energy emanate from Hitler's body, knocking many of the lesser soldiers backwards. What power! Such strength! I've never felt so alive! Who needs an army of guns and tanks when I such hold such energy in the palms of my hands? <clears throat> Kakarot! What are you blathering about this time? Wait a sec. You're not Kakarot! Vegeta stands perplexed in his classic blue onesie by the building entrance. <laughs> still drying his jet-black hair with a towel from a recent shower. Vegeta! Uh, What are you doing here? I thought you'd be with Goku! Screams Krillin as he takes a step back in panic. I decided to catch up with them after some more training. What about you, Krillin? I never thought you'd actually have the balls to betray your friends for power, though always second rung, huh? And who are you with the ridiculous mustache? I see they can only make imitation Super Saiyans these days. You dare mock the Furious Fuhrer? You will beg for death? Ha! I was just looking for a new punching bag. Looks like I just found one. Um, the chamber erupts in destruction as Vegeta and Super Hitler begin blasting each other with deadly energy attacks. Uh, the neo-Nazi troops scramble to save themselves as collateral damage spews everywhere. Even Krillin is forced to retreat inside the HTC's inner building. The two collide in a flurry of punch and kicks, uh, but Vegeta is knocked back with Hitler's genocidal death ray. Um, <laughs> that actually stung a little, Vegeta scoffed. Now, how about I give you a fair fight? 
Vegeta goes Super Saiyan 2 upon command, rising, uh, surprising the Fuhrer with its majesty. You too are of the Aryan supremacy? I cannot allow such insubordinates when Shenron grants me an army of Super Saiyan soldiers with which to rule the Earth and conquer the galaxy. Ha! Don't make me laugh. I've never heard such a ridiculous... Wait. Did you just say you wanted to create an army of Super Saiyans to conquer the galaxy? Yes. I think this is the start of a beautiful friendship. (laughs) The end. Man, guys, tonight we've had Fred Phelps and Hitler and and Orson Welles, truly some history's greatest monsters. (laughs) Coming up next to the stage, Miss Maggie Wagner. So I don't think I took the uh, I don't think I took the fan fiction as literal as I possibly could. But it, this was because I was I was a replacement. I only got brought in today, so I had to scan my stuff and see like, oh, what what counts? What counts? So this is going out to all the Trekkies, of which I am I am hugely one. In fact, if you if you are searching Google, you will probably if you type in the words "Lady Wesley Crusher," you will find me. Somewhere with rainbow sweater <laughs> and a tricorder and a derpy look on my face. It's a really cool picture somebody got of me with a uh, Beverly Crusher, and I, was, I said, "Mom, it was awesome." So this is called Holodorks or Visor NB. Televisions were much smaller long ago in the bygone era of 1993. Reception was much spottier too, and the sound quality wasn't so Dolby surround. You might have to fiddle with your antenna to get the picture to stand still in 1993, and some of you might say that was the year I was born, and I will scoff because that's surely creatures as young as you cannot exist, but I digress. Our technologies may have been a shadow of your current 20-year sleeker and more intuitive devices, but we knew touch screens and Google Glass were in our future because they were already inhabiting our fuzzy screens as all of us turned into uh, tuned into Star Trek The Next Generation. Well, maybe not all of us, but at least three 11-year-old girls drawn together by our lack, lack of athleticism, scholarliness, and ability to read social cues. <laughs> So we were glued to the television each week. I, with the thick glasses and the mouth crank speech impediment. Um, Sarah was heavy set and asthmatic. And Dina, tiny, black, and soft-spoken. We founded our own Starfleet against the specter of advancing algebra and well-dressed children who seemed to sniff out our thrift store clothes. Uh, I crafted little communicator buttons out of cardboard and the backs of clip-on earrings that I found in a Tupperware box full of them. In my grandmother's craft closet, they clip nicely onto t-shirt necks. She'll never miss these, I thought, and I pocketed them, and a number of doll eyes and doll hands. (laughs) She was very crafty. She was very crafty. And we'd stake out a ridge in the parking lot snow mound just off the playground at recess, and we may have had the idea of enacting our own space adventures, but in, in all honesty, we never made it past bartering who got to be who. Dina would swift, swiftly call dibs on the empathic mind-reading abilities of part-human, part-psychically uh, endowed 
ships ailing Councillor Troy. Uh, of all of us, she was a peacekeeper, so it made sense. However, Sarah and I would narrow our eyes and haggle over our favorites every single time. I want Jordy souped up Pfizer Vision. <laughs> you got the visor last time. You should get Android strength this time. I was the one who brought my dad's wraparound sunglasses. I get to wear them. You could totally be Wesley Crusher. He was the smartest. <gasps> no fair! So, at no point in our arguing did it ever occur to us that we were in a battle for anything other than the finest superpowers. These heroic attributes of like futuristic, well-adjusted teammates. In the future, all ailments and debilitating neuroses were distilled into that individual's best quality blind character, Geordi. LaForge pilots the vessel and is given the ability to, to see the entire human spectrum and beyond. Um, and a machine, Data, performing complex operations free of any trace of human fear or doubt. How about our, our alien Paul Worf? With the, with the face ridges. He was embraced without question by the very community of people who might have been his enemies several short franchise films ago. <laughs> the biggest bad guy in this universe was Homogeny. Join and be one with the Borg. You really have no choice. So, these characters were wholly accepted beyond their battles and esteemed in a way that we Playground kids were not. We may have argued for the benefits of that pair of wraparounds. So, I mean, I mean visors. Uh, but I don't think any of us would have demanded the role of Jordy Sands visor. And we probably would not have found emotionless banter half as endearing had it come, had it not come from an Android programming, but uh, as it usually does, the product of brain chemistry. Think about it. Thousands of years of advancement couldn't deter heavily made-up extras from pointing to the motley crew invading their planet via shimmery beams and demanding to know, what are those things? And it was harder to be inclusive in 1993. You know, actually reaching out to a disabled person wasn't as easy as the future made it appear. Remember, this is just public school, and most kids with ailments, the, the ailments that we envied so darn much were cloistered away in special classrooms. The kind of It's the kind of educational system that gives really good lip service to the idea of widening your definition of different and seeing difference in yourselves. Uh, but it also knows full well that kids are cool. And we will fling canned pineapple when we see disfigurements and impediments and canned pineapple at the very least. So, we stayed in the parking lot, encountering alien races from their snow mound where we were far, where our away team beamed so frequently. And now that I think of it, that's exactly how we found each other. We were the only kids who didn't openly mock the strange children playing with paper towel tube phasers. Joining Starfleet was much easier in the 20th century than it would be in the 24th, but a lot of kids wouldn't be caught dead. So, the impression Star Trek helped us to absorb back in 1993 and, and why I think it's so lastingly great is, is that in, informed, like, informing that enviable squad it was the work of tireless effort, not just like dumb luck of holding the scratched pair of wraparounds. And if we three 11-year-old girls could have taken our own shortcomings and traded them up, we probably would have jumped at the chance. But, you know, think of any Star Trek episode you've ever seen, where the guest players handed some magical device to make them younger and powerful and fun at parties, and they're mighty for that fleeting moment, and then they're brought low by their own ill-preparedness. Um, remember the old guy that got younger? 
or uh, Wesley Crusher's shape-shifting Harry Beast space princess, and each of them were brought low. Meanwhile, our favorite spandex officers would just take every temporal loop in stride and immediately, immediately return to work on that malfunctioning warp drive. Don't worry about visors, they were telling us. Just perform your damn duty, all right? You never know when the captain's going to give you a warm pat on the shoulder and tell you to engage. Thanks. Star Trek is the best. Uh, can I get Katie Johnson Smith up here? Yeah, I'm gonna stay up here because we're gonna do some music, uh, and then we're gonna take a break after this song. So if you guys are thirsty or need to use the bathroom or whatever, Dwight will be happy to show you where that is. Uh, he's, he's very happy. <laughs> um, so Eric and I wrote this song uh, in LA. We were in L.A. last week. Yeah, guys, we're pretty cool now. <laughs> Super cool. Yeah. Um, and it's, I think it really proves that, at least I've been listening to a lot of Taylor Swift. <laughs> True. True. Uh, yeah. Now, you took the theme of fan fiction very literally, right? Yeah. This is this is set in the, um, in the, the fic- Battlestar Galactic universe. Totally. <laughs> it's not. It's set in real reality. <laughs> Close. Yeah, it's, called, it's a song called Closed Doors. <clears throat> Are we standing? Um, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sure. Okay. All right. I'm sorry that I broke your heart, but not sorry that I kept your name. We're better now that we're apart. I still know you, but it's not the same. You were never really in my dream. For a time, I was yours. Some love isn't what it seems We live our real lives behind closed doors We were busy being told to get married I forgot to fall in love My life wasn't what you carried You were something I could dispose of You were never really what I wanted And I made you pace the floors Now I'm a ghost who will keep you haunted We live our real lives behind closed doors I don't mean to tell your story I don't mean to make you sad I'm just taking inventory Of the life I could have Enough to be like, oh, that's probably what this chord is. That's all, Katie. Thank you, Katie. Thank you. This has been a Nerdalogs production. For more on the Nerdalogs and our shows, please go to www.nerdalogs.com.
thank you all, thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.